Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Of course, we discussed when to begin increasing our policy rate. Our approach to monetary policy throughout the pandemic has been deliberate. And we were mindful of the rapid spread of Omicron and the fact that it will dampen spending in the first quarter. So we decided to keep our policy rate unchanged today, to remove our commitment to hold it at its floor, and to signal that rates can be expected to increase going forward. As we indicated in our press release this morning, the timing and pace of those increases will be guided by the bank's commitment to achieving the 2% inflation target. Okay, so not only does this uh, give us an indication of uh, what the bank has planned, it also does represent uh, a policy change here. So what do we make of uh, what we heard today? Joining us to talk more about this announcement, its implications uh, for the economy, for Canadians, for inflation. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jeremy Cronick, who is Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Jeremy, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So a significant announcement in, in many respects today from, from the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. What, what stood out to you? Well, I think it's a surprise. Uh, the market had largely priced in uh, an expectation that the bank was going to actually increase the overnight rate. So the fact that they didn't, uh, in some ways, it, you know, is, 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 is additional stimulus to the economy because the market had basically already priced it in. So it's an interesting decision. It's a bit of a surprise decision. Uh, so that's probably the, the, the number one thing that stood out to me. Why do you think they didn't raise interest rates now? Why, why bother signaling that interest rates are coming? Then why not do it now? Yeah, well, I think you heard the governor say that there's some trepidation about what Omicron will mean for the economy, uh, you know, whether that might dampen uh, some spending. And so, you know, it was necessary to keep the overnight rate uh, lower. So that was probably, you know, the, 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 the primary reason. You know, there's also... Um, you know, the, the forward guidance the Bank of Canada has put in place, uh, the expectation was that the overnight rate would stay at its floor for longer. So there's a sort of credibility story there with the bank keeping, uh, keeping it the way they said it was going to be. And, you know, this allows them to sort of further signal uh, that this is coming to get everybody prepared, uh, as opposed to the market getting prepared more based on what was happening in the economy. And this is the, this is the bank saying, you know, get ready, it's coming. So there's a little more preparation time, perhaps, as well. I mean, is the bank shifting its thinking at all here on, you know, what's tolerable when it comes to inflation? He talks about inflation being, in, in his view, around 3% by the end of the year, which is still relatively high if we look at the more recent context. What, what does this tell us about the Bank of Canada and the, how they view inflation? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Uh, the, you know, the governor said, uh, I think, last month that, you know, they were uncomfortable with where uh, inflation was, and that's not surprising. Headline inflation is well above the, the top end of the band, top end of 3%. I mean, it's at almost 5%. Uh, but you're right that they do seem to be tolerating a slightly higher inflation for 
for a longer period of time because, as you said, it's not like this is going to go back to 2% by the end of the year. They're not looking at that until 2023. So uh, there is a little bit more tolerance to this. But I think that um, what what they're going to make sure uh, of is that expectations uh, don't become an anchor in the long run, right? It's okay if, if people expect this to be, you know, a, a year of being above target. But if in the long run people are still seeing inflation, well, then decisions start to get made that, that have real impacts on the economy, and it can be a lot harder to tame inflation down the line. In terms of the economy, and obviously one of the reasons why we've kept interest rates low is to try to prop up the economy or, or try to encourage economic growth. I mean, if we're going to raise interest rates, that would imply that the Bank of Canada is comfortable with, with where things are headed uh, as far as the Canadian economy is concerned. Tiff Macklin talks about 4% growth this year, but is, is that enough to justify rate hikes, do you think? Well, I mean, so so it, it depends a little bit on, on, on what's driving growth and, and really where inflation is going, right? If at the end of the day, the Bank of Canada uh, is an inflation-targeting central bank, their job is to target low and stable inflation. And so with inflation where it's at and where it looks like it's headed, I mean, you know, the bank's primary job is to make sure it's not going to be this high and get higher and higher and higher. So uh, that's kind of job one. But as part of that, uh, the bank certainly has to assess what the economy looks like, what its potential is, um, and and where you know where it might be headed. Is 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 demand or is supply? Excuse me, you know, sufficient to meet demand? And if it's, you know, if if they view that gap, that output gap, what they call it, if if that's sort of, uh, you know, if it's closed and and it's starting to really sort of uh, demand starting to outstrip that supply, well, then you have an inflationary problem. So you so. You know, it's not an easy job to do to tame inflation, um, you know, when your economy isn't going gangbusters. So uh, there's there's sort of a lot of moving parts here. But as I said, job number one for the bank, you know, is is to assess the path that inflation is headed down. So what does this mean for government policy? I mean, I don't I don't know that, that today's announcement represents any kind of a silver bullet here in terms of inflation mm-hmm. or, or other pressures on, on the economy in Canada. Does it absolve the, the government of any responsibility here for trying to address the, the situation? What about on the fiscal policy side, you know, aside from the monetary policy? Well, I mean, I think so. So I think interest rate hikes are coming. Right. I mean, so the. You know, we, we obsess a little bit over the timing, but at the end of the day, these interest rate hikes, I believe, are going to come. So whether they start today or they start in six weeks, they're going to come. And so I don't think it absolves fiscal policy of any responsibility. In fact, I think the fact that these that they're signaling that rate hikes are coming is that they're not comfortable with where inflation is and where the path is going. And so, you know, fiscal policy is going to have to keep that, you know, uh, you know, under consideration because continued spending you know, would only prop up inflation further. And that would require the bank to hike even further, right? So there's, yeah. there's a bit of a snowball effect here. So I don't think it absolves them. I think the timing, you know, I think it's surprising they didn't raise it today, but I don't think in the end it's, it, it, it matters terribly whether they did it today or six weeks from now. Well, and not only does that spending, you know, add some inflationary pressure, I guess if rates are going up, it makes that, that spending, or the borrowing anyway, more expensive, doesn't it? Well, that's right. And, and, and it makes, uh, you know, refinancing any debt they've already taken more expensive as well. We'll see what, uh, what awaits us in the months ahead. Uh, an interesting signal from the Bank of Canada today, for sure. Uh, certainly appreciate your insight uh, on all of this. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate you having me. All right. All the best. Jeremy Kronick, Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Uh, so in terms of where the Bank of Canada sees inflation going here, 
expecting it will remain at about 5% uh, through the mid part of this year, uh, but then anticipates a drop to about 3% by the end of the year. Um, you know, why are we confident that inflation is going to come back down? Well, we're starting to see some evidence that these global supply chain issues are starting to get resolved. If you look at uh, shipping costs, if you look at uh, port backlogs, uh, they, they, they look to have peaked and, and in some cases coming down. Uh, you know, Omicron is a new wild card. They're, they're, you know, it, it is reverberating around the world. It, it could create some, some new problems. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, as this pandemic recedes, uh, two things should happen. Once, one is uh, households should be shifting away from goods back towards more services. That should relieve some of the de demand pressure on goods. And these logistical, these supply chain disruptions should work, should get resolved and work their way through. Uh, we do think that's going to take some time. There, there are backlogs. Um, and so we do think inflation is going to remain around 5% through, uh, the first half of this year. We then think it's going to come down, um, fairly quickly in the, through the second half of the year uh, to about 3% by the end of the year. And as for economic growth, the Bank of Canada says the recovery has been stronger than expected. In Canada, growth in the second half of 2021 was even stronger than we had projected, and a wide range of measures now suggest economic slack is absorbed. With the rapid spread of the Omicron variant, first quarter growth is likely to be modest, but we expect the impact on our economy to be less severe than previous waves. We forecast annual annual, annual economic growth will be 4% this year and about 3.5% in 2023. We're expecting consumer spending on services to rebound and business investment and exports to grow solidly. The thing that really, um, really kind of strikes a, a nerve with me is, is there's a lot of people that are co-opting this issue, uh, and it's not just about truck drivers. They're taking advantage of this situation to to voice their opinions on mandates and vaccines themselves, jumping onto the bandwagon here. Well, that's one frustrated trucker who spoke with Global News about this truck convoy. He's a trucker. He's part of this convoy. He has his own concerns. But it sort of speaks to that bigger question here. What is all of this about? As this convoy makes its way to the nation's capital, what happens once they all arrive there on Saturday? What is it they want? What is this all about? I think it is, at least in the minds of many involved, about truckers, about the vaccine mandate for truckers, about the inability of some truckers then to make cross-border routes and, and to earn a living. I think Canadians are concerned about the effect this all could have on the availability of products or the price of products. But yes, it is about much more than all of that. As organizers of this convoy have made it clear, it is about all vaccine mandates, all COVID mandates, all COVID restrictions. And even if it's a minority of the population, there is a very passionate minority of the population uh, that enthusiastically embraces that, that they are done with it all. Now, the organizers of this convoy have also released what they are calling a Memorandum of Understanding. And this is basically listing their demands, which includes a demand that the Senate, that the Governor General, essentially partner with them and take control of Canada's pandemic response. 
to inform the House of Commons, to inform all of the provinces that all of the measures we now have in place shall come to an end. Is this realistic? Is this sensical? Is this something that the Canadians are a part of? So there's a lot of issues at play here, I think. Someone who's been watching all of this play out uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Our friend Matt Gurney, columnist for the National Post and contributor at The Line, theline.substack.com. Matt, always great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here. It's going to be a weird week, isn't it? Well, I think it is. I think it is. Look, I, uh, clearly this this convoy is resonating with a lot of people. We see big numbers of people who are part of this or lining the highways, or showing support on social media. But is it possible to even sum up what this is all about? What do you think this convoy represents? I don't know. And here's the problem. Like, there's a couple of problems here. First of all, no grassroots movement will actually have coherent leadership, right? And no one will be able to say with any certainty what the message is. What often happens with these movements is that whatever the message started out being it will become known in the public eye by whatever loudest idiot grabs a microphone and says the stupidest thing. That will be what will come to define the movement. And I think, I guess to their credit, I think the movement uh, organizers understand this a bit, and they're trying to have some message discipline, but it's not going to work. Like, any grassroots movement will scoop up a whole bunch of cranks, and even if the the original idea was totally sincere and well-founded, It'll get marginalized as people run in and, and take up the movement. I mean, as much as guys like you and I, Rob, hate message discipline, and we hate how all politicians and public officials speak like robots, they do it for a reason, right? Like, mm-hmm. you have to control your message or you lose control of your message. So, I don't know. I mean, to your actual question, though, I have read the Memorandum of Understanding, and it is insane. It is totally bonkers. There is not really a likelihood that these people are going to drive into Ottawa, meet with the governor general and a representative of the Senate, and form, as the the Memorandum of Understanding says, a new Canadian Citizens Committee, which will, within 10 days, issue orders to the country to end all the vaccine mandates. Like, if anyone actually thinks that's going to happen, they're crazy. And I think, you know, I've been talking to a couple of the truckers who were involved in this, and even they're like, oh, yeah, no, that's just stupid. Yeah, maybe, but if you're flying your flag behind it, you're going to wear some of the responsibility. Well, you are. And again, I mean, these are people who've organized this this convoy. Further to that, I mean, there are, what, 150,000 signatures on this memorandum of understanding. So what, what does that tell us? It tells me that there's 150,000 Canadians, or at least 150,000 people who are pretending to be Canadians, who who either don't have the first clue how our government works, or don't care. Like, and the thing is, Rob, I was I was talking about this a bit on Twitter earlier. People can check out my thread there. There actually is a lot of stuff we need to be talking about. There are important things we ought to be talking about. We need to be having a conversation about vaccine mandates. Something as infectious as Omicron has changed the effectiveness of vaccines. And I think, you know, luckily, thank God, they're still effective at at preventing serious illness or death. But the argument that vaccine mandates will prevent transmission has been weakened by the evolution in the virus. Further, when you already have a 90% vaccinated population, there are diminishing returns to any public health measure you're going to be pushing out here. So 
we need to have some of these conversations. But if your idea of having this conversation is signing your name to something that says that the Governor General of Canada, Mary Simon, will join with the Senate of Canada and a representative panel of truckers to assume a new emergency unity committee who will become the federal government, you are not part of the problem. You are just delusional. Sorry, right. you and, and look, <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yes. And it's it's easy to dunk on that. It's it's easy to hold this up and, and say this. This is all crazy. This is not going to happen. This doesn't make any sense. It's it's not realistic. It's not rational. But what is the, what is the risk then, though, of just dismissing all of this? What is the, the risk here to our political leaders to dismiss all of this? How should we be responding, though, to some of the legitimate concerns, I think, that that the people involved in this convoy want to highlight? You know, the funny thing is, Rob, and that's that's the question. And I don't even think, actually, we have to limit our answer to responding to legitimate concerns. Like, if 10% of your population is convinced that we're being run by space aliens, even if you think that's crazy, you've got to deal with that 10%. And this is something that I've been writing about for months. Others have as well. It's not just me. We have a fringe in the Canadian population, a subset, it's about 10%, maybe it's as high as 15%, that has become fairly detached from the rest of the country in terms of their political views. And this is something that I was writing about back during the last federal election, right, where um, uh, the, the People's Party of Canada, the PPC, ended up getting a significant bump at the polls and on election day, we mm-hmm. think because of opposition to uh, vaccine mandates and public health measures in general because of the pandemic. There is a large segment of of our population that is angry and frustrated and afraid. And even if they aren't rational, they still have to be listened to. And this is a really nuanced thing that a lot of people are struggling with. And I guess I'm struggling with it myself. It doesn't matter if what they're worried about is rational, because if a significant percentage of your population is worried, you have a problem. And it is up to us now as a country to try and navigate this problem. I do not believe that our political class is up to this. And I am particularly worried that both the conservatives and the liberals will screw this up in different ways for their own partisan reasons. Uh, yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. I mean, our political class hasn't exactly covered itself in glory this week. I mean, I know you were paying attention as we saw the the battle of the grocery store photos. Oh uh, look, there's empty yeah. shelves. Look, there's full shelves. I mean, it, it just it, it, it in and of itself became farcical. And these are supposedly, you know, the, the serious amongst us that are having this conversation. I mean, in theory, I mean, look, this is one of the things I think I want your listeners to understand. And Rob, I think you and I are on the same page in this one. The politicians are not the adults in the room. The politicians are the ones who have sort of become most adept at navigating the political industry. But the political industry in this country is increasingly detached from actually delivering substantive outcomes of benefit to the population here. And I said this on my Twitter thread even though I think it is completely insane that 150,000 Canadians think they're going to show up in Ottawa and form a new federal government committee that somehow assumes powers over the feds, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that repeated failures by governments and government officials and public officials in this country over the years 
have created the conditions of frustration and anger and helplessness that is fueling this kind of movement. 150,000 people have signed a document basically pledging to overthrow the federal government. And I wonder how many of them were guided along the path by one failure after another by politicians in their communities to fix basic problems. Everybody agrees ought to be fixed. You know, there was another poll out this week showing the Canadians do still strongly support vaccine mandates. Uh, I think the federal government is cognizant of that, and that's why they've doubled down on all of these policies. But, you know, when we look at the, the situation with the truckers and the vaccine mandates, and we look at the, the, the shortage of truckers in general, all of the pressures on the supply chain, I think there's some political risk here for governments in ignoring these concerns. Canadians might yeah. support vaccine mandates, but they're worried about prices. They're worried about what they're going to encounter at the store. And and those are not concerns that we can just hand wave away. No, no. And I think it's funny you mentioned the grocery meme war that was going on over the weekend. It was one of the lowest points in Canadian politics that I can recall in recent memory. And, you know, there are problems, Rob, in our in our logistics right now. There are problems with our supply chains. We already know that inflation is running hot. We know that Food price inflation is running even hotter. Food is going up in price faster than other commodities. That doesn't probably matter for you and me because we're white-collar workers. We can afford our groceries. There are millions of Canadians who already live in food insecurity, and there are millions of other Canadians who are right on the brink of it. And instead of our government, the Liberals, or our official opposition, the Conservatives, actually saying, how are we going to tackle these issues? How are we going to bulk up food processing security, food distribution security? How are we going to deal with the workplace disruptions of Omicron? How are we going to shore up uh, our critical supply chain? What more can we be doing? They had a meme war on Twitter with stupid, misleading pictures. And Like I said, the politicians and their staffers are not the adults in the room. They have become so far disconnected from the actual concerns of Canadian, which is accessibility to food, the price of food, that they actually think their job is to score Twitter points against their rivals here. We are a country that faces serious issues with an extremely unserious government, and unfortunately, an extremely unserious opposition as well. Like, I really wish we could vote our way out of this problem. Like, if it was all one party and we could just vote them out and put in the good party, well, that would be one problem. The yeah. problem, as I see it, is we've got a whole bunch of idiots campaigning to replace the idiots who currently are in power. It's not a good situation for us to be in. It's not at all. As you said earlier, Matt, it's been a weird week, and who knows, maybe it'll get weirder before it's all done. Exactly. We'll leave it there. Worry, Always... Weirder, man. Always appreciate the conversation, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, man. Take care. Cheers. Matt Gurney, columnist at the National Post, also a contributor at the Substack newsletter, The Line, theline.substack.com. And you can find him on Twitter, where he's also been tweeting about all of this, at Matt Gurney. So some interesting thoughts on some of these broader issues we're dealing with in this country and whether we've got serious people at the helm. As to this convoy. Right. Who speaks for this convoy? What is it they want? What are they going to Ottawa to try to achieve? And it depends on who you ask. But off the top in this hour, I want to explore a fascinating new book about a very old question. Who betrayed Anne Frank? Young Anne Frank, maybe one of the most well-known victims of the Holocaust. 
Anne Frank died in a, a Nazi death camp. We know that. We know that Anne Frank was hiding out in a location in Amsterdam. Her diary was found after she died. Her diary was, was eventually published. So we know what life was like for her while she was in hiding. But one aspect of the story we've never known is who turned her in? Who revealed the location where Anne and her family were hiding? Who betrayed Anne Frank? Well, that's been the subject of a five-year investigation by researchers in the Netherlands. And it is the subject of a new book on that research and on this question. It's called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation. It's a fascinating story about how we try to answer these kinds of historical mysteries. And this is one investigation that believes it has solved the case. There is a culprit identified here, and it does raise some uncomfortable questions. So joining us to talk about the book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation, is Canadian author Rosemary Sullivan. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, this afternoon. Rosemary, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us a bit more how you got involved in this project and in this research and why you felt you, you wanted to tell this story. Well, I'd have to begin at the beginning, which was that in uh, 2016, a uh, filmmaker, Dutch filmmaker, um, Thijs Bijens, decided that uh, things were moving to the right in uh, in Amsterdam and the rest of the Netherlands, as in Europe. And uh, he kept walking past this wonderful, huge poster of Anne Frank, and he thought, you know, her story is the kind of warning we need now. He joined. He was joined by a, a researcher, um, historian, uh, Peter Van Twisk, who also felt that what had happened in the Netherlands uh, between 1940 and 1945 had not fully been faced, and the Anne Frank story would be a route to that. Then they uh, invited the, um, because they wanted an out objective outsider, they invited the FBI uh, retired uh, special officer, uh, Vince Pankok to join the team. So that would have been, uh, everything was in um, shape by about 2017, 18. And by 2019, um, they asked me through my publisher and my uh, literary agent if I would be interested in uh, writing the story. They had by that point really done, I would say, three quarters of the research. I've always been attached to Anne Frank. I mean, we all are. You know, I read her book when I was 12 and was terrified by it. She was only 13 when she began writing it. But I also felt, uh, like uh, Tice Bayan, that uh, there's a kind of uh, warning here in the book that we need to heed. So I, I signed on. I'm, I'm the writer. They're the researchers. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, this is an exercise in, in history at some level, but it's also almost like a criminal investigation. And this research team, it really encompasses both sides of that, right? They're, they're law enforcement officials, criminologists, but also historians. How does one go about trying to solve a mystery like this? <laughs> Absolutely. There's a... You know, there's a difference between the scholarly uh, and historical approach and the and the forensic specialists, uh, um, uh, such as uh, Vince Pankok. So I think um, what Vince thought he could bring new to the uh, investigation, there had been actually two criminal investigations into who betrayed Anne Frank, one in 47-48, uh, and then a police investigation in 1963, 
neither of which reached any conclusions. Uh, and he thought that what he could do was take um, the um, FBI strategy of looking at each suspect in terms of motive, knowledge, and opportunity, and either select or eliminate them on that basis. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he also began to use um, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, the cold case team asked the data company Exomia to create a database with the huge amount of material they had amassed. Uh, it, some, it was something like 66 gigabytes of, um, of um, material, of, of uh, data, and uh, something like 450,000 4, 4, files. Um, and they had this uploaded to an artificial intelligence platform so that they could cross-reference. They could find connections between people and addresses, policemen on raids, uh, they could get the identity, uh, they could upload citizens' residence cards, NSB memberships, that's Nazi, Dutch Nazi memberships, uh, the names of the uh, informants. There was something called the V-men and the V-women who were um, used by a group called the um, the um, Jew Hunting Unit, which was a unit of uh, Dutch uh, police officers who were getting bounties for every Jew they found in hiding. And they used these V-men and V-women as, as strategists to get um, uh, to know who was hiding where. So it, he thought that he was bringing something entirely new, and I think he was. Well, it appears as though this investigation has, has indeed found an answer. There was, you know, a, a number of different theories to be explored, and, and the, the, the team, as I understand it, was able to rule out these theories, I guess, to rule out all but one. So is, is it fair to say that we have a culprit here, or at least that the evidence points in a certain direction? You know, this is the hardest part of uh, an investigation. You begin, you have no idea where it's leading, uh, and then you find out that the answer is not what you had hoped. Right. The person who was selected uh, as the person who met knowledge, opportunity, and motive um, was uh, a, a Jewish notary called Arnold Vandenberg. Now, he wasn't selected casually. His name uh, had come up in an anonymous note that was given to uh, Otto Frank after he returned from the concentration camp Auschwitz. And the note said, your hiding place was betrayed by Arnold Vandenberg. So the, the team went very carefully through... Um, ways in which this could be proven or disproven. And on the one hand, uh, it, it, um, they used forensic analysis of the note that uh, was available. Uh, um, Otto Frank said he had made a copy of the note in 1947. Uh, they tested it, uh, determined that the copy they had gotten through the son of the detective who had led the investigation in 63, it was the note that uh, had been typed on uh, Otto Frank's typewriter. But that wasn't enough. They also began to listen through what Vince called his projects, the um, statement projects, the resident projects, the arrest tracking projects. And they found that in the statements projects, uh, Meep Geese, who I think anybody who knows the Anne Frank story has fallen in love with Meep. She was so such an extraordinary human being, uh, one of the people who helped to keep the um, Franks and the other four people alive in the two years, 30 days that they were in hiding. Meep um, made some statements. She said that she and her uh, and Otto knew who the betrayer was. Uh, 
She said on one occasion that the betrayer had died before 1960, that uh, the betrayer, uh, that that uh, Otto didn't want to tell uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the Nazi hunter, the name of the SD officer because he wanted to protect the uh, culprit's family. All these pointed in the end to Vandenberg, but the point was, I think, and I really insist on this, that Vandenberg was as much a victim as anybody, who, mm. if you knew in 1944, as everyone did, that uh, you, uh, your wife, and possibly your children could be sent to extermination camps, who would not give over a list? Who knows how many names were on that list? 10, 15? Uh, which were, un- sorry, not, not names. They were addresses without mm. names. This is what he gave over to the SD. Uh, and that's what the anonymous note says, that Arnold Vandenberg um, gave to the SD uh, uh, your name, your address, uh, and um, uh, uh, Arnold Vandenberg, who lived at such and such a place, identified him, and then said, uh, and there were other addresses he gave. So I, I feel that uh, Vandenberg was as much a tragic victim of the Nazis as other people. He would have had a ordinary life if um, fascism hadn't come to his city. Do you think then that, that Otto Frank would have seen it the same way? Well, how do we understand him then, if he, if he knew this or was tipped off about this, keeping it to himself all these years? Because um, he was, I think, quite serious when he said that, um, you know, he knew uh, Arnold Vandenberg was dead. Arnold Vandenberg uh, died in 1950, five years after the end of the war, of throat cancer. What would be uh, gained by identifying Vandenberg, especially in, an, in a post-war uh, atmosphere that was um, anti-Semitic in large part. Uh, but also, um, he felt that the issue was over, that uh, he, 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 can we use the word forgive, perhaps? Uh, um, Otto Frank was a very large-hearted man. He did not want to destroy the lives of the, um, of the man's children, is what he said. So, um, for us, you know, it, it became an issue. Um, do we, if Otto Frank didn't want to give the name, do we give the name? But, but in fact, I, I feel that this book is less about who betrayed Anne Frank. Uh, or if you want to answer that question, we all did, in the sense that uh, no um, a refuge was given to people trying to flee uh, the Netherlands. Uh, Otto Frank tried to get a visa to the United States on many occasions, and indeed even to Cuba. Uh, but each time it, it failed, his, his efforts failed. But it's a warning of what happens when you have, um, you know, untruth weaponized or fascism becomes mainstream, you know, fear dictating how people behave. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't know who you can trust. I felt when I came across a statement by the um, U.S. office, uh, it's, it's called the U.S. Office of Strategic Services in 1943, when they were um, trying to analyze how Hitler operated, said, and I'm quoting from 1943, never, uh, Hitler's strategy was never admit a fault, never accept blame, concentrate on one enemy, blame him for everything. <laughs> you know, we've heard that. Conspiracy, hyperbole, defamation, lying, they become acceptable vehicles of power, and it, you know, it has to be stopped. So that's part of the takeaway, isn't it? And part of the, the lesson and history's warning for us, even here in 2022, about the Anne Frank story. Yeah, 
especially here in 2022. Here you and I are having a conversation. Meanwhile, there is statements that the Russians are amassing troops to uh, invade Ukraine. I mean, this is the 20, you know, 21st century. What, what's going on? How does this happen? Human beings yeah. do not seem to change. Fortunately not. Again, the book is called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation. It is out now more at uh, rosemarysullivan.com. Rosemary, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thank you for asking. Take All the best. Bye-bye. That is uh, Rosemary Sullivan, a Canadian author, author of the bestseller Stalin's Daughter, her latest. It's called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.